0: Really happy to have everyone here today. we got an amazing panel lined up for us. It uh, includes Florence Kasul. She's the Director of Procurement for the U.S. Digital Service. Caitlin Dorman, who's the President and General Manager of Improbable's U.S. Defense and National Security Business, where they build a platform for synthetic environments. And then Colonel Eric Obergfell, He's the Director for Contracts at the Air Force Research Lab. And he recently came from SOCOM, where he was the head of the contracting activity there. So we got a lot of great stuff lined up. The context of this is really a term that we call acquisition next. Uh, And the Center for Government Contracting here, we came out with a report last month. And the premise is really, hey, there's a bunch of authorities out there to get things done. And what we really need is a change in mindset. Get us past this kind of pendulum of acquisition reform. Stop that swing. Let's just move towards improvement. And so certainly there's room for reforms, right? Budget reform is one of those things, and we've been tracking that at the center for a while, and we're excited about the PBBE commission, but top-down reform needs to be complemented with bottom-up culture change, and so the two really need to go together. So much of the past of acquisition seems to be spending years doing this analysis and then program offices kind of executing those baseline plans. And what's really missing a lot of times is this kind of error correction and whether that's built into the process. And so one of our kinds of frameworks is we need to move away from these industrial age practices, really optimize for assembly lines and kind of move towards more digital era practices that we can learn from other organizations within the department of defense and other government agencies themselves and the commercial industry. The report that we put out really has two sections, program level plays that are like adaptive requirements, continuous market research. And this term we use, mastering the baseline, and this is really here to set the program up for modularity and iteration. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a nice webinar on this, but once programs are open to modularity and iteration, it enables our second set of plays, which are software intensive plays. So we have those as agile work statements, modular contracting and strategies for intellectual property. And these are really kind of at the contract level. And so while we're excited about the report, you know, we're really here today to have a great conversation with some real leaders in this space. And so I'm really looking forward to their views. I want to just start with some short opening remarks from the panel on anything, whatever they'd like to start on. So... First, let's go with uh, Florence, and she's, of course, the acquisition nerd and bureaucracy slayer. That's a moniker that she's been tagged with, so I'll
1: let you go. Thanks so much, Eric, and thanks for inviting me and for pulling into helping out with the playbook last year. I also want to thank you for you and the center and, and all of those who are involved with taking this on, those of us who are true acquisition, like geeks and nerds love this topic and the different topics that that tie into them. And so it's always really refreshing to have people do the research because oftentimes in government, we don't have the time to do the deep research around these kinds of, of issues. But I really appreciate the all hands on deck approach and the collaborative nature of industry and government and academia coming together to try to tackle these problems. But as you said before, in terms of going from the industrial age to the digital age. I think it really is a culture shift for a lot of folks, even for those who are digital natives, but have plugged into industrial age organizations and have taken on some of the culture of those organizations and are having a hard time figuring out which rules apply and which rules can shift and help them with their work in the acquisition space so I'm really happy to be here thanks for inviting me and I'm looking forward to this panel thanks florence so we'll move on to uh, eric
0: and his linkedin tagline says accelerating change in weapon systems development i love it
2: over to you colonel Hey, uh, I don't know if I stole that from Acquisition Talk, but I should have, right? I love that podcast and I uh, talk about it every week, what I hear. And I love that you talk about all the different services. So it's very refreshing. So keep it going. So I would be remiss if I didn't start with the threat. As you're seeing in the world right now, there's a lot of stuff going on in Ukraine and kinetic action, but underlying that is really all the stuff that we're talking about today as far as software that delivers that kinetic action, but as well as the software that influences our sentiment as a nation. And as a allies in the whole world. So I think it's a, that whole software piece, the threat. And just like Eric Schmidt would say in his AI discussions recently, I'm a man in a hurry, right? So there, our adversaries have a big plan, especially China, as we look at it, that's our pacing threat. They have a big plan to uh, really pass us up technologically. And they've got the means to do it with the population that they've got in their defense spending over the years, as you uh, pointed out in several podcasts. So the threat is why we do all this. That's the why. So, we can live a free life uh, according to the foundation of our nation, right? The principles of our nation. So, I really got on this journey when Bob Work was Deaf, and he started off with a third offset strategy. So, uh, I was really uh, inspired by that message. And at that time, I took on lean type. Activities to really try to get after problem solving faster. So third offset strategy being if the Chinese and others are stealing our IP, how do we actually iterate faster? So we make that IP stealing irrelevant uh, because we're continuing to deliver capabilities faster. So acquisition next, I think, is an interesting collision between the third offset strategy and our threat and the acquisition world. So I, I toggle between the PEO world and the lab world right now. I, I, I was at uh, SOCOM ATL where we you where know, it was all in one building, which was awesome. But uh, then I went to LCMC did support the PEOs, delivering weapon systems. And now I'm at Air Force Research Lab, dealing with basic research to develop capabilities for those PEOs. So I think all these plays are very interesting. The DevSecOps playbook is another great one to read. I look forward to talking about the software-specific plays today with that, yeah. that Agile statement of work, modular contracts, intellectual property. But I do want to, I think there's a lot to talk about with the um, mastering the baseline too. There's that's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes hand in hand with DevSecOps. And I guess one thing I just, you know, want to leave you with on the leadership piece. I hope the contracting officers that I've led over the years aren't rolling their eyes with me being here right now, because the only reason I'm here uh, is because they're so busy that they cannot breathe. They have lots of work to do. And this, and there's a lot of learning to learn uh, that we all are trying to grow with this uh, software pathway. And as well as just the systems that we're supporting. I think the the contracting officers that hold the unlimited warrants or the agreement officers that are executing here are the ones that uh, I would love to hear their perspectives. But I think the value that I might add is that I've been to these several different organizations over the last three years. This DevSecOps really kicked off in 18, 19 timeframe. I started with the, the soft culture as we stood up soft digital applications and then have gone through the different big organizations to see how it scales. And so leadership matters in this, right? We can write policies as an HCA a head co- contracting officer, I was in charge of policy for you know for Socom. but I can tell you the leadership, what I did was more important than what I did what I said in the policy, how I led. And I think that's what we all got to take, take seriously is how do we lead in organizations? Do we pick the right people that are trying to drive change? Do we train them the right way? Do we give them the right tools? Do we create the right psychological safety in these organizations to, to let them fail fast and we all get together and pick it up and, and move forward? So I'll leave it with that. Over to Caitlin. <laughs>
0: Yeah, thanks, Colonel. That was really good. And of course, leadership and top cover are going to be crucial to any kind of change here. Kind of the things that we've been talking about, but I'd be interested in this kind of all the DevSecOps stuff from all of you guys. There's been, for me at least, the past few years with DevSecOps, it felt like there's a lot going on, a lot of change, interesting communities, but also a lot of intrigue and little battles between government and different contractors. I wish someone would go out there and write like a narrative history of what has actually happened technologically, but bureaucratically, contractually, through that, but that's for another day. So Caitlin Dorman, you've had a really interesting background here, mostly on the non-traditional contractor side. So I'm really glad to have your perspective. Come on in.
3: Thanks Eric for hosting this panel and also for your team's leadership on the playbook and your broader work in this area. And I'm happy to be here as an industry voice. So now more than ever, I think almost a decade into the official defense innovation initiative, software is really central to everything that DOD does, like Eric said, from designing and developing new systems to analysis, test and experimentation to all domain operations. So shifting our contracting approach to align with modern software development practices will let the DOD benefit from work that's being done by innovative non-traditional firms and also to harness dual use of software from other industries. Drawing on my engineering background um, and experience in the defense technology community for 15 years, like you mer- and mentioned Eric, I've been at companies including Blue Allen, Palantir, and now Improbable. We're proponents of the recommendations made in the playbook. And I think a few important ones that would call out both happen to be software intensive plays. But first is the shorter iterative contracts focused on working software and feedback through the structured process provided by Agile rather than fixed rigid requirements. I think those kinds of requirements preclude flexibility and responsiveness that Agile offers and forces companies into an old paradigm for software development. I think as other panelists have alluded to agile contracting also brings with it the need for culture change. There are critical roles for government team members to plan agile teams like product managers end users and others. So I think successful agile teams have to be joint teams. And then the second one emphasizing flexible data rights with a focus on obtaining full rights to application programming interfaces or APIs and data, including metadata and uh, data schemas, instead of focusing on extensive government purpose rights when using commercial um, software. Also, I I think the playbook does a good job of calling out one one fallacy in terms of developing systems that allege to be open because they follow certain data standards. And we agree with the recommendation to make use of well defined interfaces that the government will own, have insight and understanding to through having interface control documents and require systems to be decomposed into microservices or as close as we can get. I think this both protects the industry's core IP and allows the government to be able to avoid vendor lock in, be able to replace any component that isn't performing without rebuilding their entire solution. I was going to say just a couple quick words about improbable. So globally, we're focused on two very different markets. The first is gaming and entertainment, and the second is defense. So my business unit, deliver uh, U.S. Defense and National Security, is focused on bringing the best technology to the U.S. government and bringing in those delivery practices while appreciating this sector's unique requirements and needs. We were founded to solve a specific problem related to distributed computing, and we were the first company to leverage cloud hosting in that way. As the company has grown beyond that specific tech problem, we identified applications in the defense community to build and deliver highly complex and immersive virtual worlds for decision making and training through our synthetic environment development platforms. Just as an example, we're providing defense customers with an operational decision support tool that allows them to look at potential courses of action and then simulate them to see what the outcomes may be. So I think in the discussion, I'm sure we're gonna to get to some of the, the areas of challenge where we've seen DOD and industry struggle due to, to current software contracting practices. So I'm excited to get the conversation with, started with this great panel. Back to you.
0: Awesome, thanks so much, Caitlin. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I'm glad you went to the intellectual property. Maybe let's just start there for a minute. One of the things that we talked about, cause what you were saying there actually feels pretty collaborative, I think, to what the government feels like they wanna to go towards, right? I want to ask let's start with the Florence here now how can government promote this interoperability and avoid vendor lock while avoiding getting too much data rights that kind of drives away non-traditional contractors is is that the way just get the interfaces and and the data just don't worry about black boxes or is that a good idea but there's actual real problems underneath it
1: no i think it's a good idea but i always share that one size does not fit all right so you have to under every program office and every everyone who's building systems has to understand what is their unique situation, what are the risks um, involved and understand how you can iterate on that into the future in order to continue on with your mission. So if that means that you're going to wrap your build and put into your contract certain data rights to protect the government, make sure that it's also something that is meaningful for your future process. I've seen in the past some situations where the government wants to control and hold all of the data rights for us for a specific something. And then two years later feels as though they've hamstrung themselves in terms of how do they continue on with that particular build. But I think it's it really is dependent on what are you, what are your objectives overall. You can work with your and we're going to get into the into this later on in the panel but you can work with the vendor community to understand what are the data implications along with your requirement in order to understand how should you protect the government's interests and not have a one size fits all solution because that is that's unfortunately what i've seen a lot in in the ip space within it contracts is this is the way we're going to go, this is the way we have gone, and this is how we're going to go in into the future without taking into consideration what are the specific needs that we have today, and what are the implications moving on 16 months, 18 months out, 24 months out, et cetera.
0: Colonel, would you like to uh, jump in there?
2: Yeah. Wow, Florence did a great job on that one. I don't know that I've got too much to add, but if you think through uh, what Platform One uh, infrastructure really tries to get after is creating an open type capabilities for can, continuous integration and continuous delivery, right? So, where we're getting uh, code put into Iron Bank as our, our repository. And there's those opportunities for different vendors, where they're ideally what we're trying to get to is where if you can have a, a CIBR go through phase one to phase two and even get into the repository working in that way. But I would say the idea is that we continue to develop as long as you've got the rights that, whether it be government purpose rights or whatever, and you've gone into that at the front with a definition clearly identified and all players know what they're responsible for from the beginning. I think that's really where we want to be. Yeah, I think that's, I'll stop there. There's plenty of good stuff to talk about later.
0: Caitlin, so we right. got a question from the chat for you to go a little bit deeper on the IP for interoperability for DoD. I guess the question really is you guys as industry want to have government vendor lock, <laughs> the vendor lock folks to some degree, but what's your view here? Like that's just like an ability to monopolize the market. That's like the way we traditionally think of firms. But the question here is really like, how do you think about commercial IP and interoperability such that you could have upgraded solutions from alternative vendors? Do you allow for that kind of competition to come into your space? Because you guys have a platform for developing virtual worlds, right? So once someone yes. goes under that, are they locked in? Or how do you think about that?
3: good question. So I I guess to respond to the first point about industry, do we want to get vendor lock-in? I actually think industry and all of us as a community, we do best when there's competitiveness. So I like to see within software ecosystems, I think that's a way that we can see competition to build and provide the best solution for a particular mission need while still maybe taking some of the burden that you all talked about with DevSecOps, continuous integration and delivery and ATO. Either the government or certainly industry can help with this to establish the the sort of infrastructure and have a common set of uh, requirements for hosting or containerization that can make deployments faster but it also prevents the software provider from having to do a complete customization to a new infrastructure every time. So you're able to on ramp and off ramp faster should the government choose to switch industry partners. On the commercial platform piece, certainly I think the kind of the platform itself, while it's a commercial product and the the company certainly needs to protect its IP that comes from private investment into building the platform. Using that platform doesn't come with a vendor lock-in in in the sense that it can't be replaced. Just like some of the other ideas we talked about where you have microservices architecture with well-defined interfaces, The government is still able to go out and either find a commercial replacement or build a completely bespoke sort of purpose-built solution to replace even the platform itself. We certainly are not seeking to to bring vendor lock-in along with the use of the platform. I think AWS is a great example of how that can, it has its downsides certainly, but a great example of how platforms can be utilized without being tied um, to that one platform forever.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. It seems one of the things here that maybe like legacy firms, they like that lock in, but it's like a strong play to say, we're ready for competition. We'll just out compete and out iterate. That kind of goes back to what the Colonel was saying. Like, we just have to be able to adapt and innovate faster. And I think we heard that from Elon Musk when he put all of his patents out there. He just trusted in himself or his company that they could just out innovate and that would actually rise all boats, right? Like, rising tide lifts all boats. Um, So competition and IP, one of the things that we've heard from people was like, IP in a way is a red herring, so long as you have competition open throughout the process. And Florence, we talked a lot about this and you were like a staunch advocate, I felt like for competition in in, in government contracts. But in the last uh, panel, we actually had one of the PEOs, uh, Jim Shermer from Ground Combat System talked about. How in sole source situations you can have the users really use the the product and give this iterative feedback and really collaborative in that kind of agile way. Whereas he when he was trying to use it on a different program in a competitive situation, the lawyers were really nervous over like inconsistencies or subjectivity of soldier feedback. And so, like, how do you specify all that evaluation criteria in section L and M and stuff like that? He said, our system is geared towards fairness more than effectiveness. And we never navigate how to really make use of soldier feedback. What would you say to, to someone trying to use the competitive process in this kind of iterative, fast way, but it feels a little bit rigid in, in that way? You, you can't get the kind of collaboration that you want.
1: So I would offer that anyone who wants to get that feedback, there is a phase during the solicitation phase. After you've issued the solicitation, where you, if especially in the realm where we're doing statements of objectives or, and you're putting out your objective as a high level, top level, this is what we are seeking, of doing due diligence and putting that into your solicitation to say, we are doing due diligence. And what is due diligence? It's essentially allowing for communications and and exchanges between government and industry. And FAR Part 15 allows for this. But I understand a lot of folks feel a bit nervous about doing exchanges or having conversations with industry, but when you're doing, this is the digital age, when you're building software and you're building websites, applications, forms for the use of people, for people to engage with, you want to get as much feedback as possible. That's part of the whole agile development process, right? And I encourage people to use some of those principles in the solicitation, in the acquisition space as well. And that due diligence piece, there was an acquisition advisory that came out in the early 2000s, like 2002, 2003, basically advised people to go through this due diligence process where you, your development team, everyone, except for the source selection um, official, is allowing for these engages with engagement and have conversations with industry partners who are part of the competition to get feedback and understand what is this environment? What are we building? Get as much information as possible in order to inform and help with the the buy. Because you wouldn't have, my analogy right now, I'm in a, a new house, my husband and I just moved into a new neighborhood, but you wouldn't have a contractor come and do work in your house inside your house without looking coming into your house and looking at that right you wouldn't have some say send me your quotes and your bids by standing outside of my home presuming what the inside looks like i would want the same for those who are going to come into the government and do this very collaborative work to come in have a conversation with the very teams they would if they were to um, be awarded that contract have conversations get to understand what is the environment in order for them to present and provide a meaningful and real solution, and one that's fully informed as or as informed as possible.
0: Colonel, you want to jump in on that? Same kind of question over to you.
2: Yeah, I guess. Uh, so I would approach it two different ways. So how, I love the previous podcast on acquisition talk and webinar. So great point there. And it was, so his point was all about the weapon system, like a major weapon system on ground vehicle. I could talk to you about several examples, SOCOM, where we Took a different approach on accelerating the pace of an acquisition based on user feedback, using a OT for prototyping, 2371B, where we went out there, we took white papers to reduce barriers to entry, really streamlined the process, reviewed the white papers and went to do uh, manufacturing readiness and, and looked at the capabilities that they had in plant. And then from there, we got a proposal from those that we thought looked good for prototyping. And then from prototyping, when we got the prototype, we also got the production proposal. So we want to make sure it's competitive before we go into production, but that gave user feedback in the white paper section, the manufacturing readiness section, the prototype evaluation, and the production section. So that's all pre-award type feedback. And I could talk to you several programs about that. And we did that within one year to really streamline that acquisition process on ACAT 2 and ACAT 3 level programs. So exciting stuff there, but we're talking about software development today. And I park it back to DevSecOps it's all geared around user feedback, right? The whole idea is user feedback and how do we build those relationships so the user is getting feedback at every step of the way. So whether it be like A-B testing, telemetry, or canary type releases, think those are all opportunities for us to evaluate software along the way and get that user feedback without doing surveys or what have you. We're just looking at user behavior, comparison of the two models of software in the A-B testing or in the canary testing, just percentages of releases to a population to see how those uh, folks are using those different capabilities we just delivered. So I think the feedback in the DevSecOps environment is built in, it's baked in, just like security, baked in. and, And I think we do a pretty good job at that, over.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to add on one quick thing about soldier touch points and user feedback. I agree, it's absolutely critical at every stage. I would just add that all user feedback is definitely not created equal, and I would like to see someone from the program office adjudicating the feedback, and that could also be one way of making it more fair in a competitive environment where you have a government you know, member of the program team who is collating and providing direction to the performers on how to respond to the feedback so that they don't overcorrect.
0: The Colonel talks about using twenty you know OTAs essentially to start this process off. OTAs, I love CSOs as well. Commercial solutions opening as a very flexible merit-based uh, solicitation mechanism. But what about just what can we do it within the FAR as well? One of the things that was pretty influential on me was the DHS Procurement Innovation Lab bootcamp, but also stuff like from USDS, Tech for Handbook and all of that. But they were pointing to multiple award IDIQs as one place where you have these streamlined procedures and comparative evaluations. You can also do it for simplified acquisition and federal supply schedules. But a lot of people are also pushed back on the multiple award IDIQ notion because it gets It it can be like this huge production that takes years and it's never as flexible as people say. Eric, what's going on there? Or what would you recommend?
2: Yeah. So I've got some experience in this area that I'd like to talk through. So as we stood up like soft digital applications, we were going after the MCCOP, which is one of the first ones going after the software acquisition pathway. We started off with a CSO and to try to go after, okay, how do we develop capabilities, create low barriers? We awarded an an OT off the CSO for one area of interest. I like a cyber phase two for another one. We mippered funds to get on another contract for another area of interest. So I love the flexibility of the CSO in finding solutions that are quick to execute. So once we get the tech eval, we can execute fast in lots of different ways. So I think there's a lot of goodness in the CSO and I've done some other things in CSO that's just, it's just fun. And I think it's really flexible and it has low barriers. Now, when I talk to organizations, I know I love one of our last uh, briefings on the maturity of an organization and the different contract vehicles that they use in the maturity of an organization as well for software development. So I, I've seen that as folks, sometimes based on maybe the capacity of how many contracting officers and program managers you might have in a shop or what have you, uh, and their maturity in that, you might end up going to a MAC IDAQ, even if you've started with the CSO OT strategy, If you got the Mac, you're still going to probably multiple award, I'm sorry, acronyming here. But if you got a multiple award, you're still probably going to get after lots of different solutions that could build teams that can create winning solutions and it's quick to execute, right? So I think there's some maturity there that I've seen folks go from like a CSO where we're wide open to Mac type awards where you're just competing task orders. So lots of different ways to get after it, but I've seen that sort of as organizations mature,
1: they start using different tools over
0: Lawrence, do you have any uh, insights on, on
1: that one? Eric hit it right on the head. So, so people will say multiple award contracts and IDIQ something will take, it's onerous and the, the benefits aren't as you don't, you. it's too much to go through to actually benefit from it, but it depends on your organization. It depends on the structure. It depends on the maturity. It depends on your personnel. There's so many, it depends as part of it, but there are all sorts of vehicles that are available between the MACs, the multiple award contracts, between the GWACs that are available that are out there, the government-wide acquisition contracts, between the large IDIQs or even single award BPAs that that some organizations will create that allow for other agencies to feed off of. It really is part, it's Everyone's responsibility, I'm a former contracting officer, it's everyone's responsibility to do the, as part of your market intelligence and market research that you do out, that's outward in terms of trying to find the different um, vendors and capabilities that are out there. It's also our responsibility to understand the lay of the land in terms of the contract vehicles and the different types of vehicles, OTs, if your agency allows for it, the different types of contract vehicles that are running around all around the government. To, to see what can you leverage in order to meet your need. Perhaps it's not the time to create a brand new IDIQ for yourself, and you should leverage the hard work and sweat and tears that other people have already experienced and put forth. But it, there are all kinds of ways to get to a contract to meet your needs, but it's about doing the research and understanding Which ones are available to you that will help you get to your end result because all of these contracts they're just enablers to help an organization do their. And do their work in the best possible way with an with a wonderful industry partner and it's it to me it's a matter of finding which one works for you and it's sometimes not the best solution is starting from scratch. So doing the research is my tagline for this particular piece. I
2: I just had a brainstorm on this one. Harkens back to my thoughts on, you know, when we first started category management like a decade ago or something like that, and we were really like, okay, how do we understand our spend and do things a little bit better to get after leveraging that spend to get after better solutions? So Instead of roofing or HVAC, you know, which we initially did with uh, those types of solutions in category management, software and IT is our biggest spend if you look at it across most organizations. So this is a better way of getting after category management. If you look at in in February, I think they came out with the software modernization policy, talking about software factories and really encouraging that. If you look at what Platform One's done with their BOAs, basic ordering agreements too, keeping it competitive at all layers of the stack, but also creating uh, vehicles out there, where you, or you can do decentralized ordering as well, or centralized ordering, if you want to leverage platform one to get a, a software factory up and moving very fast to deliver capabilities to programs, s community, or, or agencies. So if I was starting scratch on, okay, how do I solve a problem for an operator? I would look at the tools that platform one already put in place, because there's a, a great, there's a tool for each level of the stack that you can execute to get your factory going uh, really quickly to solve your problems. Over.
0: So Caitlin, what kind of contract types do you guys actually receive and what do you prefer? What works best for you?
3: Yeah, we are seeing a lot of OTAs, firm fixed price contracts. I would say also CSOs can work very well. Those types of vehicles tend to be best, I think, for smaller companies. There are innovative ways to get past some of the challenging aspects and ease the process on both sides. If I could, I've seen some gaps with OTAs that I'll maybe bring up. One is, I think FAR and DFAR's language can start to creep into OTAs. You know, There's not, I think, a great understanding of the sort of boundary um, between those all the time. Something that Florence and Eric actually already mentioned, OTAs will sometimes reserve the right to have multiple vendors, but we've seen a lot of cases where only one team is selected effectively cutting uh, the competition short. This could be because of budget constraints, but I'd suggest where appropriate, why not look at MVPs, minimum viable products, rather than full system development and initial fielding through an initial OTA. And finally, when non-traditional contracts are used, program offices should keep keep the spirit of the contract vehicle throughout the the life of the program. I don't issue an OTA, but then effectively treat the contract as if it were different. The kind of non-traditional and modular aspects of the contract doesn't shouldn't stop with award. We should follow through in order to make sure that innovation really happens.
0: What does this contract actually look like? We talk about agile contracts. What, what does that mean to you? What, does, what defines an agile contract? And, and then how do you actually write deliverables? Because it seems like government wants to have that Comfort and notion of this is exactly what they're going to do, and these are the tasks to go get there. But then, when you move to an agile contract, it opens that aperture. But you still need to like assure accountability and delivery. What what makes an agile contract agile, Florence?
1: Sure. So, an agile contract is one that allows for the flexibility for agile teams to work. And so, if you have an agile software development team that's on the ground or it's coming on the ground to work with your organization that contract needs to allow for, those, allow for the flexibility and not, not be so rigid that it creates more work for everyone to execute. So what does that mean? I've seen some people sprinkle the word agile all across a performance work statement or a statement of objectives, a statement of work, whatever requirement document that you're working with. And then whenever, when the designers come onto the scene and are doing human-centered design and, and research, and the results of that research create a pivot in the in terms of functionality or whatever else the contracts team says oh we need to mod the contract in order to allow for this or that that is not an agile contract so make sure, i would offer that if you are if you if it's your first time or second time getting into this kind of getting into this kind of space in terms of buying the services of a firm that do agile software development services get to understand what their services are. In terms of de- what the deliverables are, fully functioning software, like full stop. I do not want your deliverables to be a PowerPoint deck showing me what the software is going to do. I want to see the, the whatever that functionality is along the way, that to be rolled out over time. And that means as part of it, working with looking on the ground, once the contract is awarded, understanding what are your dev teams doing? What are the designers doing? What are the different positions on the team doing? How are they executing? And how are they meeting the spirit of this contract? And the, that agile contract is just, you have the framework of making sure that you are you have a repeatable service that, that the team can rely on and they are iterating on over and over, and they are getting better and better over time. If you want to go to a stand-up and you can see, and I encourage all contracting officers and contract specialists and program offices, go to the different stand-ups, understand what people are talking about, ask questions, and then after the sprint is done, understand what has actually been completed. If they are, If they have engaged users, which they should at some point, and some point sooner than six months after the contract is awarded, you should know what the contracts team is doing and executing in a very quick in a very quick turnaround. It should not look or feel like a waterfall contract at all. If it does, it's not being There are all sorts of versions of like agile fall that are running around the government right now and I think it's part of the maturity process, but For most people, I would say in most organizations, I'd say an agile contract is one that is that's providing for functionality of working software. And it's probably if it's your first time doing it, a smaller dollar contract. It is not a big bang. We are going and hitting for hitting the stars. 10 million dollars. It's our first time doing this kind of contract. We're going to, I think, get into modular contracts at some point here, but it is a small it's typically a much tighter timeline in order to execute and, and provide value and show and provide value.
2: Eric, you want to jump
0: in? What are agile contracts to you and what prevents the failure modes? It seems like we, we have a lot of failure modes getting there.
2: Well, prevents failure modes. So when we try to define the requirement comprehensively, right? So then you get to this huge approach, almost like a waterfall type sc- scenario when we're say we're doing DevOps. Okay. We want to get all this stuff so i think here's a, a plug for the tech far hub right so i think there's a lot of really good stuff uh, in there that the cio puts out that talks about modular contracting and understanding how to use uh, modular contracting in this approach but the interesting piece when i talk to some of our software factories is really the conundrum of are they really personal services contracts in a lot of cases yeah does it, it feels like it i know that's a dirty word in our business but we are trying when we're trying to be agile a lot of cases we have government coders right along with industry coders trying to solve a hard problem. So I think it's, it is trying to bring those skills to the table and how can we get after the product vision that's negotiated between the program manager and the ops side? So what's the product vision that we're trying to get after? And then what's value assessment, the frequency and the definition of value that the ops side has. And then the program manager helping us get to, to that point of, okay, here's the value assessment. Here's the contract team that's working it. So I've got, you know, a couple of coders sitting right next to my other government coders and they're trying to solve problems. We need that flexibility, whether it be a TNM contract, I don't think fixed price works here as I think it's hard to define the end results in a lot of cases. And we want to be flexible enough to pivot when we see problems. And as one senior material pointed out to me is we don't want folks to be afraid to identify tech debt around as they go through the process too. So if we've got a firm fixed price in an area and they're like, ah, we don't want to address that. Nobody talk about it or what have you. So you got to create the right contract that's going to drive psychological safety for folks to be able to challenge each other and pivot when we need to get after it. I'll let Caitlin jump in. Yeah, Caitlin, come on.
3: Yes, I I agree with everything Eric said. I think it's important when we have agile contracts and defining requirements that they're very outcome-based, but we may need to be creative to avoid those pitfalls that Eric mentions, put in performance measures, whether it's things like availability or uptime, or whether it's number of bugs that are found and fixed within the contract time. I think that's really important to make sure that the agile process can um, deliver something that meets the core mission need, the outcome that we wanted um, to go after in the first place. And um, I have seen some very successful DoD contracts using agile principles. Actually, some of the most fun work that I've ever done was to be part of those joint teams. Some things that I think worked really well were to actually have the team do agile training together. Like Florence said, we don't have to be prescriptive about the process. So as you look at the full, the full kind of framework or agile, agile principles, it's not only fine, it's recommended to pick and choose what works for you. Are you going to do a scrum with all the sprint reviews and daily standups and demos and backlog grooming and who needs to participate in each one? I think a training can help manage joint expectations. And then I would say culturally, it's important that delivering working software and deploying systems is seen as important as other operational roles because I've been in programs where personnel were pulled out of operational roles to be the product owner on an agile, on the government side. But the operational postings still continue to be um, the thing that earns promotions. So culturally, I think the organization has to value the delivery of these successful programs as much as some of the operational work
1: um, that personnel could be doing.
0: Florence, come on. And then Eric.
1: You hit a nerve with this one, Eric. Okay, so one thing that Eric O said that also hit a nerve and I'm watching the chat is the psychological safety piece. So an agile contract also everybody, I believe, needs to understand that not every piece is going to be perfect. Like you're going, this is not a failure proof, like you sprinkle agile, you know, something on your contract and in these services, and then everything is failure proof. The teams are working collaboratively together to learn and understand what is it that we need here? What are we building to inform and delight and make sure that the users on the ground, the people who are actually going to use this software, that it's going to be useful? And it's something that, is, that we're not creating and building software that has features that, are, that go unused or functionality that people don't understand we're building something along the way, and we're learning and like bobbing and weaving as we do it together. And you have whoever is the product owner of that has to have the leadership cover to understand how to prioritize well, how to move and motivate people well, to make sure that people can ask questions and learn in an open and collaborative way. Because in past, instances uh where i've seen people want to go through this like an agile transition you can't wrap them around you better get this right 100 of the time like throughout this entire contract that p it creates an environment where people are feel in fear of actually asking the questions and it completely goes in the face of what you're trying to do here so i think eric mentioned the the maturity model, and it's the digital maturity model that we have on the TechFAR Hub. If you go to usds.gov um, and find, I think Kirsten dropped in here, the TechFAR Hub in the chat, if you go to the digital maturity model, there are questions that an organization can ask themselves. It's like a personal review, an organizational review of where you are realistically in order before you engage in these types of contracts or if you're in the service of going forward with these kind of contracts, Just do an assessment of where you are so that you can start off on the right foot because we wouldn't definitely don't want you to go from zero to a hundred and not prepare your personnel along the way in order for people to be successful.
2: So if I could jump in, one of my favorite things a leader told me as we were executing is there's nothing that you can do that I can't undo in 24 hours. (laughs) His point was, Go out and experiment, think outside the box and really challenge the norms and try to drive change. So his that's his whole point to me. And we tried to do that. I don't know if I was successful. I don't think he had to undo too much, but I did try to experiment. But the whole point of that was this is very uncomfortable, especially for a contracting officer that's been in as long as I have. Whoa, I'm used to FAR eight, Far 12, FAR15, FAR16. When it gets out of that, it gets very uncomfortable in a lot of cases. Not saying you can't use those, but using OTs or CSOs and all this is new stuff. So I think this is where it goes back to that leadership point of our organizations aren't designed. And this is where Caitlin said, hey, you got to make sure you got the right talent and give them the right incentives. I'd say our current organizations really aren't designed right now to incentivize that kind of change or people taking some of these non-traditional roles that are hard and uncomfortable and then experimenting in them. So I think there's, we got to continue to look at that as we uh, structure our organizations from a corporate air force or corporate services perspective, and then make sure we get the right incentives for folks to really accelerate change and try to do something different. Because I think really a lot of our incentive structures are rewarded around doing business as usual. And we've got to change that. And I know I'm part of the problem. I'm a, a leader here. I've got to make sure that I incentivize folks and I give them the right uh, training that we, uh, Caitlin talked about. All right, I'll stop there.
0: Back over to you, Eric. What you said earlier, like firm fixed price probably isn't the right uh, mechanism for some of these agile contracts. One of the reasons I like the firm fixed prices, it gets you away from all those business systems and a, a ton of other requirements that kind of come along with it. You know, yeah. FFP, LOE level of effort, I think you still have the timekeeping, but what's your perception? Because if you're working with a bunch of primes, okay, CP, LOE all day or a TNM is not a big deal. But what about if you have non-traditionals in your base and then Florence jump in?
2: Yeah, so that is a problem. So we've had some current policy exclusions that give us ability to not have cost accounting standards for cyber type uh, work, which is goodness there. But I agree. I do hear that from some of the non-traditionals that it is a very big challenge for the cost accounting hurdle to get over. So yeah, okay. I think like Palantir, Andrel, several others that did a really good job, like saying, "Hey, we know your requirements better than your requirements, and we'll develop something to meet your requirements." And we bought into that. So I think there's there are some great examples of non-traditionals that have done very well in that environment of firm fixed price. And I say, there's no one answer. So I said firm fixed price, probably not the right answer, but in some in some cases it probably is. I think you've got to adjust to your uh, specific scenario that you're trying to, to solve the problem you're solving and then figure out what's the right contract vehicle for that problem.
1: And then what am I really trying to attract to grow
2: my innovation base here or what?
1: So I thought I had a new friend in Eric Obergfell until a few minutes ago when he said FFP cannot work in these scenarios. And I thought, no, Eric, don't say it. <laughs> and I'm glad that he, in his last comment, he gave some caveats. There are moments when this does work. And we've, we have at USDS, our procurement team, we have encouraged many agencies to go this route at, on an FFP basis. And we have documentation to show people how you can build your contract with an FFP contract type, but this is definitely a robust debate and conversation among acquisition people across the government and within our industry partners, where we've also spoken to some of those non-traditional vendors who have said, FFP works for us, especially when we are just getting into the government space, and we can focus on delivering working software. And we do not have, and we are, we know what the teams are. We can flex within the FFP bounds and just deliver within, like iteratively within the sprints and not have to worry about the cost accounting issues, any kind. And also on the government side, when we've talked to program offices who have said the TN, walking the t animal down the street, takes a, it's a lot of overhead. In our office, and so understanding when you are when you're selecting your contract type, it, it is also part of the analysis of your organization. What are the risks involved with on each side for all of the parties, and then making a, a, an informed decision there? Can I just say, Eric, we can still be friends. It's okay. Not afraid to
2: admit I'm wrong.
3: Uh, From an industry perspective, just jump in on that. I do definitely see the place for cost plus contracts and T&M contracts, especially on more of the type of basic research work. and, And that's a road that we've explored and in fact gone down. So I think just to add a little bit of color into what Florence said about how the additional business needs can be very, can be very constraining or even cost prohibitive for some small companies. Our assessment at the outset of this journey was that the cost to prepare our organization to be fully compliant with cost accounting requirements and other FAR and DFARS clauses, it's in the hundreds of thousands over the first two years, which includes salaries for required personnel that you need in order to administer these contracts and systems. I also think there's a cultural aspect. The industry partner has to change to comply with certain contract types. And there's kind of this balance in any organization between compliance and innovation. And as the scale tips towards compliance, it does become harder to recruit um, and retain the best engineers because they you know, have their pick of environments to work in and their pick of companies to work for. And it, it definitely does present challenges in, in personal retention. Some
0: of the questions that have actually been asked here, and I think this kind of gets back to as well some of the stuff in other transactions, but there's two questions and one was like, do we need a centralized cadre for like agile contracting? And then another question was, there's also that new software cadre that came out of the National Defense Authorization Act. Do we need these kinds of like special teams to help with the product ownership and like the business functions of this that are separate? Or is it actually like, hey, we need the current system, those folks to all move in the same direction in a kind of crawl, walk, run. So is it like a separate cadre or is it like a crawl walk run florence i'll let you jump in first and then eric and caitlin
1: so i, I want to take a step back and think through that question in terms of when we are there are all of the agencies it is everywhere as eric said it's the highest spend all of the agencies are buying some sort of it system solution software you know services and all of these services when you're building these kinds of digital products it's highly collaborative So if you centralize them, how do you collaborate across the enterprise? So I'm an advocate for crawl, walk, run, make sure that everybody support the crawlers, support the walkers, support the runners, like all at each stage, and make sure that they have the training that is necessary for them to jump to the next level, because you, we need to empower people to understand what they're buying and then learn how to buy it properly and how to administer and walk whichever animal they're walking down the street, they need to know and learn how to do that. Centralizing it and creating, I think, a specialized cadre of, of folks, I think would potentially end up like creating a system where there's higher risk at the other at the other agencies that don't have that kind of that kind of expertise, but I want to build the workforce up so that wherever and in the, I'm in the DC metro area, there are pe- people move agencies every two to three to four years, I'd want people to have that and then if they're finished within moving within the government, they move within industry. So I'd want people to have that ability to move from agency to agency and for us not to have this very specialized group all in one area.
2: Yeah. Hey, so I'm a big uh, proponent of range, right? The book range that talks about how just having a broad base of skills as a contracting officer started off as a weapon system, buyer in space. Then I went to operational, then defense and post-award contract administration and DCMA, then operational squadron and then combatant commands twice. So I think there's lots of skills that you need along the way, but if you have the foundation of contracting uh, and non-FAR tools, I think that's really where you got to go. I think the training that we got to continue to really grow with everyone is this sort of agile or DevSecOps type mindset of continuous integration and continuous delivery type mindset. How do we really get after problems faster? Mm-hmm. And that's really where I would push it. I think a lot of people put some stuff in there, like TechFar Hub, Fars Training. I like to watch this. So there's a lot of great DAU videos out there. Nick Shallan, I don't know what he did but he did a lot of videos and they're fantastic. A lot of great stuff out there. Uh, you can learn a lot just by watching his videos. And I agree with what both the other panelists said about just bringing the whole team together in, in some of this training. I think there's breaking down the barriers. If you just did contracting folks in the training, then we're all going to see it from our own vantage point. If you just did PMs from their own vantage point, but bringing the team together and discussion some of the training, I think there's super, super value. And I think just like category management, it took a, when we were starting it, we had to have people that could look at, do the business intelligence, look at what made sense to put into categories and manage by portfolios, like crawl, walk, run piece. So we have to make sure that we teach folks how to do the basics of putting together these type of contracts. And then we teach a larger group how to use these type of contracts and then continue to proliferate until we're all running at hopefully at a, a very fast pace.
0: Great. And I, I love that you used one of my favorite words, Eric, portfolio. We can move towards portfolio management at some point. But Caitlin, I, w- I want to stick with you, like some of this stuff that we're talking about with agile and maybe even like modular contract, we didn't get to some of those questions, but it almost, it feels like the paradigm is almost like government has this requirement and then you come out with these contracts and you have a level of effort for a while. And then you move up the, through the stages and you get things developed and deployed and all that kind of stuff. But then there's Eric also mentioned the Palantir's and the Endurals where they're just like, we're just going to build it and then sell it back to you guys. And they might have some of those types of uh, contracts to do. And you can tell me more about this, but some of the kinds of, they have their own enterprise tool and then they build off of that for unique customer needs, but really the capabilities in, in that tool and then the licenses that come from it. So it's one thing I struggle with in my mind is, okay, if you're, agilely and modularly iterating through these development contracts, where does that end and where do you shift into this kind of as-a-service model or consumption-based model where you're actually selling a product? Or is it government just owns the whole thing and they're always paying through these little contracts for each upgrade and development? What, how do you think about that consumption-based as-a-service model versus these kinds of level of effort, in modular software development models?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really like the as-a-service model I would say, especially when it comes to dual use technology, there often is going to be some kind of like integration configuration, last mile requirement to get something ready for the DOD. So I would see that either can be wrapped into a contract where customers purchasing the license and then the necessary configuration to field and go live, or you could do it separately as a services contract for sure. But on the broader point, software is no longer capital investment. It's a utility. Um, It's a utility delivery model that has a lot of advantages under the right circumstances and government really shouldn't be left behind on that. I see a lot of demand to avoid these fixed capacity software contracts where the nature of usage, whether it's the number of users, the compute required, the storage is dynamic, the requirement is dynamic. On the flip side, USG also needs cost predictability, even if they're paying on a consumption-based model in arrears. So I think industry should be looking at a model with a ceiling within the fiscal year to avoid unbudgeted overages. It's, I think it really encourages price pricing transparency. Commercial companies have to do a lot of work to get to a point where they can offer their software or their platform to customers as a service. It has to be transparent in the sense that your vendor has to instrument and collect all these usage metrics, and they should be able to show you on a dashboard at the end of the month, how much you used. And that kind of takes a lot of work and drives considerable product investment to get there. It also going back to an earlier point, I think that the vendor is incentivized to continue to produce the product. So that you use more of it. And the company has to bet on themselves to say, yes, we're going to bring an innovative product to the government. We're willing to do it on this model where we don't have either a minimum buy, or we don't have a guarantee, you know, in terms of a three to five year contract. So you could do things, even our company, we're looking at providing synthetic environments as a service. So basically the government would gain access to the platform itself, as well as certain capabilities and content that have been integrated and tools for developing the actual end user applications, all available and hosted with a pretty quick delivery. So you can, some customers might want like a a virtual world or synthetic environment with 10 million complex entities in a dense urban environment or something like that. It would be very expensive purely from a hosting environment. Just the bill for the compute alone would be considerable. So you want to be able to turn this on when you need it, turn it off when you don't. It doesn't have to be a persistent world. So this kind of model lets you just pay for what you use. You can separate out the cost for integration of new content, going back to your point. So I do think it's something that's a great opportunity for government to work in that way.
0: But just back to real quick, do you guys offer like a services, you know, model and then a product model or is, is that how it works for you guys? We do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Florence or Eric, jump in If on, on the same question. This kind of like services, software product development build versus like actually buying it as a service or consumption-based.
2: Yeah. One of my passions is really working with developing our younger contracting officers. And we, what we've been doing recently in the Air Force is sending them out to venture capital type companies, trying to understand how venture capitalists invest, find a portfolio to invest in to create all these unicorns that we're reading about. That brings back to the point what one of your previous guests, Catherine Boyle, have talked about is how, you know, the frustration with VCs of bringing uh, technology to production. So we get, is it innovation theater or are we actually getting some of these products in, into production? And I would say there are some success stories there where we're getting some small non-traditionals to go into production with weapon systems more probably at the ACAT three and two level. But when I look at some of the successes, they have been as a service type model and rather than a production type environment, I think there's some real interest there. And that's where we can get maybe venture capital on dual use technology to support that service when they, Hey, this is a service the DOD is interested as well as the rest of the world. So they're going to put in some money to really scale some of that development. So I think as a service to us is, is interesting. And I think that fits right in with another one of your guests, Christian Brose. When you wrote that book, The Kill Chain, we talk about divesting of some of our legacy weapon systems to get after higher volume, more attributable type weapon systems. So what does that look like? Could some of those be as a service or what have you, or a system integrator type piece? So I think there's getting a little bit off the software path talk, but I, I think there is as a service discussion as we look at venture investment, as well as what does our future weapon weapon systems look like?
0: How about some final thoughts? And we'll start with you, Florence.
1: Okay, great. I think, in the realm of innovating and trying to all improve, I would encourage anybody in leadership here and anyone who is new to the field leadership, ask your people questions. What's working? What's not working? There was a a customer experience EO that was issued back in December. And in that, it was about asking and making sure that. We center people in all of the requirements that we do. And I want to pull that back a little bit to make sure that the acquisition force is also supported and part of that process so that we are asking our acquisition force, what is working and what is not working? How do we improve ourselves in the process, just like we are, we improve and do agile software development, to impart and put on top of our acquisition process, processes a reevaluation of what is working and what is not working asking ourselves, how do we improve those acquisition processes in order to support the different missions that our offices are support that's one and also doing an analysis of what are the local policies that we have that are that may not be serving us. Anymore. I love Eric's organization's idea around sending people out to venture capital and sending them out into industry to learn, do the work to educate our workforce as much as possible in order for us to be true business advisors. So that people know when they're sitting across the table from teams at Improbable or teams at any of the other firms that are out there, that they are as informed as possible about the work of those firms. In order to understand how do we make sure that we are all good partners and fiduciaries to protect the taxpayer dollar and meet the the different mission needs i'm very big on training i I support my team like whatever training you want to go on please go because it's it makes you better it makes us better i think it makes people happier and much more confident in the work that they do and i think it is a boon to everyone if they get as much training and on the ground or elsewhere in the world as they need. Thanks. Uh, Caitlin?
3: Yes, I'm very excited with some of the momentum that's really starting to pile in behind more modular contracting, ways of doing modern software development and DevSecOps with DOD. I think there has been very positive momentum, even though we still have work to do. And I just come back to the benefit to the government. What is the benefit of getting uncomfortable and doing things in a new way, working with the kinds of companies you don't normally work with. The benefits are that together, industry and government teams can get working software to users, we do we reduce the risk, either the risk of something not working or being obsolete by the time that it actually gets fielded. We also move some of the risk on to industry in, these, in some of these approaches that we've talked mm-hmm. about. And it gives DOD access to the innovative technology that I think they really need. So overall, really excited about this direction and you know, pleased to see conversations like this going on. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Caitlin. And the far says it right there, right? Modular contracting reduces risk. So Eric, over to you for the final word. And I don't want to steal your thunder, but you were interested in the, the mastering the baseline piece. So if you have any also like success or thoughts on disaggregating systems into, and then separately contracting for those technical pieces would appreciate your insights there as well.
2: Okay. I'll start from there. One of the key leaders at uh, Kessel Run just at South by Southwest last weekend was pointing out how important it is to own the integration piece. So the continuous integration piece, so we can have contractors doing a lot of the build through modular type contracts or teams. But that integration piece where we're actually looking at the validating the code and, and going back and identifying errors and sending it back for further builds and improvements, so in, important. And, and what I see that is mastering the baseline, that integration piece. When we look at our software factories, owning that integration and not outsourcing or you know outsourcing the baseline, outsourcing the integration piece is something to really consider. I'll leave that at that point so we can talk further if you're interested on uh, mastering mm-hmm. the baseline because that goes to a lot of our different programs, but that's the software piece. So I want to just hit on two points here as I wrap it up. I love to talk about what other leaders have told me. Here's another jewel that I got. Respect plus trust equal opportunity. So in this DevSec environment, the DevSec environment between the contractors supporting us, the teammates, the government coders out there, and the leaders have to have that respect and trust. That's what's going to create the opportunity for us to move fast and create software that works. So that's super important. And then One of the things I learned as a leader coming up through major commands is I was very big on using lean, coming in with a deliberate innovation strategy. And as I found in chaotic environments that need to move fast, that doesn't always work. So I had to pick up to on an emergent innovation strategy. And I found that there's a lot smarter people executing at the lower levels than me. So when I'm creating policy, I needed to actually watch what they were doing, figure out what was working, and then figure out how to scale it as fast as I possibly could. So I really encourage leaders at all levels to look at what's the emergent innovation strategy I need to take and then figure out how to scale it fast. And it goes back to what Florence said is really just give the training to the people out there and then trust them and let them go. And then once you see what's successful, scale it as fast as you can. And thank you very much, Eric. I, I encourage you to keep this exciting acquisition talk and these webinars going. I love it. I'm always looking for the summary every week and all the exciting guests that you have. Thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed the talk today.
0: Well, thanks so much for that, Eric. And uh, Florence, Caitlin, it was great to have you guys on. I really appreciate it. It was a great discussion. Again, Acquisition Next is a report. It was a really great time, and we'll see you in the future. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.